Well, good morning, and good to see you today. Uh, Looking at the book of Esther this morning, I'm very excited about uh, speaking on this topic, but the book of Esther comes just before the book of Job and right after Nehemiah, and we'll look at one quick verse to get us started this morning. And it's, the message is on viewing God or seeing God in the background. One of the things about the book of Esther, you may know this already, but the name of God or the word God is not used throughout the whole book. Uh, Nor is the word prayer used. And a lot of people question whether the book of Esther should even be included in the Bible since God is not referred to. But the point of Esther is that we may see God in the background of history even when it appears that He's absent. And I think that's true for our lives as well. So the first thing we'll do is read uh, this verse uh, in Esther chapter 9, verse 1. In the twelfth month, month Adar, in the thirteenth day of the, of the same, Esther 9, 1 says, The king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Just some uh, history behind uh, this. The uh, Jewish people were exiled about 600 years before Christ. Give me the uh, map, if you would, there. Um, The Persian Empire stretches from Egypt all the way to India. It was basically a worldwide kingdom. And uh, modern-day Persia is actually called Iran. So they were as hostile to the Jews in 600 B.C. as they are today. But um, Israel down here had been taken up to Persia earlier by the Babylonians. And then Persia defeated the Babylonians. So that's how they got up there. Now, some had already returned home. You read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah. They had uh, gone back to the land of Israel and started rebuilding the temple. And that was about 500 years before Christ. But many stayed behind. They never left Iran and Iraq. In fact, uh, uh, 30 years ago, 25 years ago, when they had the first... uh, Iraq war, there were many Jewish synagogues in uh, and around Babylon. And I, I, when I saw that on the news one day, I thought, how the, in the world did they get all those Jewish synagogues up there? But they're remnants from the, the deportation of the Babylonians back 600 years before Christ. Now, they're not there now, but they used to be. Well, Esther is one of those people who stayed behind in Persia. 
after uh, many had returned under Ezra and Nehemiah. She has a relative, as Esther 2 verse 7 says, her father and mother had died and Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So it was an older gentleman and watched over her and cared for her and provided for her. And the story of Esther in uh, the first couple of chapters starts with the king of Persia, a worldwide ruler, uh, decides to bring officials from all the provinces, about 127 provinces. He brings them all into the official city there in Persia and is going to wine and dine them for about a week. And uh, toward the end of the week, he decides that he wants to show off the beauty of his queen, Vashti. So he sends for her. And as you know, when you send for your wife, uh, she comes right to you. No, (laughs) Uh, we do not know that. Nor did this king. He found out Vashti had her own mind and own will, and she wouldn't show up to be introduced to his official court. And so the men all got together after that and said, you know what, something has to be done about this woman. Because if you let this episode remain, all of the men's wives in the Persian Empire are going to disrespect their husbands. That kind of attitude must not persist. So they said, here's what we should do. They made a decision um, that she would be deposed as queen and a global beauty contest would be held. I mean, this is the biggest beauty contest that has ever been in history. This puts Donald Shane Donald Trump's beauty contest to shame. This was a biggie. And this little Jewish lady named Esther wins. And the king has favor upon her over all the others. Now, no one yet knows that she's Jewish or that her uncle or relative Mordecai is Jewish. But it comes to the forefront when Mordecai will not bow down when a man named Haman enters his presence. Now Haman is one of the king's officials, maybe second in command. And he feels that he is owed the kind of honor and respect of every person to the point they should kneel before him. And so you have this picture. Look in Esther chapter 3 and verse 5. Esther chapter 3 and verse 5. Give me that next one up. Esther chapter 3 verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, he was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands just on Mordecai. 
says he had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all of the Jews and the people of Mordecai. He was so mad that he decided, I'm not just going to get rid of Mordecai. Haman said, I'm going to, I'm going to stamp out all of the Jews because they are not giving me the deference and the respect that I deserve. And then look at uh, Esther chapter 5, Esther chapter 5 and verse 9. Haman went out that day joyfully and glad of heart. In other words, he's having a good day. But when he saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he didn't even stand up when he would enter the room. And he didn't tremble with all. And he said he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. But he restrained himself and went home, brought his friends and wife in and said, You know, I have all these riches, Esther 5.11. I have all these sons. I have all these promotions and honors from the king. But Esther 5.13 says, All of this is worth nothing as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting there at the king's gate. One of the things, of course, is that Mordecai had a different value system. Uh, In Exodus 20 verse 4, it is written in the law of Moses, you are not to bow down to any carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven or earth. So Mordecai is being true to his faith and his conscience. He has a different value system. He exalts God. Haman has a man-exalting value system. Now these two cultures clashed in early Persia. It is the same way today. The Christian has a different world view than the typical U.S. citizen of the world. They want, they believe that if they win an Oscar from Hollywood, we should all defer and brag and watch. I don't even know who won the Oscar this year. Don't really care, to be honest. Or if they have awards, they want to offer each other and televise it that we should all watch it and stand in awe. Um, Let me give you this illustration. Uh, Fire Chief Kevin Cochran, uh, who was the fire chief in Atlanta, Georgia, was so successful there for several years that the president... Obama at the time, made him the head of the U.S. Fire Administration. Uh, And while in Atlanta, he made the fire departments uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, number one in the top 60 of the biggest fire departments in the United States. Though he was a committed Christian, he was not abrasive with his faith. You know how some people can be, uh, kind of get in your face and get on your nerves. And 
But he was not like that. He only shared his faith when asked. But he led a Bible study in his church on family life and was very successful. Many people in his Sunday school class asked him to write a book or publish the notes from that class. It was on family and marriage. So he did. In this book, he shared the lessons he had taught in the church on family and marriage. And one of the lessons was on the fact that marriage is between a man and a woman. Whoops. As soon as that got out, the city council met. One of them had read part of the book and decided that if you're a city employee, you cannot bring those kinds of beliefs into the employment of Atlanta, Georgia. They fired him. Not for incompetence. He was number one. And it was not for an ethical lapse, but purely from Christian convictions. Cultures were clashing. Belief systems clashing. The Bible or the mentality of the society that surrounds us. Another example. Have you all heard of eHarmony.com? Well, who hasn't? It is a matchmaking service based on Christian principles. And a report this week that I read said that on an average day, there are 500 weddings directly connected to the matchmaking of eHarmony.com. Per day, 500 per day, 5% across the United States of all weddings are derived from eHarmony.com. The man is a Christian, taught, was a Christian counselor for 35 years and just simply took those principles and put them together. I thought, wow, if you are single, I can tell you where to go. (laughs) I can help you find somebody. No, I'm not going to do that. But he was then sued a few years ago by gay and lesbian attorneys and ended up in the court system where he had to pay half a million dollars to settle the suit and set up a website for compatible partners. Now, my question is, why can't he just do his business? And someone else set up a website for compatible partners. No, they want him to conform and be squeezed into their mold. It's not enough. That's not freedom, my friends. I want you to look at Esther chapter 3, verse 8. And I think that the book of Esther, the English Standard Version, pulls out exactly the sentiment in Esther 3, verse 8. Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There's a certain people here, scattered abroad, dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom, and their laws are different from those of other people. See, they have other beliefs. And they do not keep the king's laws, so that it's not to the king's profit to 
tolerate them. They are in, Haman was intolerant of those people who said, we exalt God, we do not worship man. We can respect people, but we do not worship people. People are not our redeemers and our messiahs. And the true Christian, the man of God and the woman of God, will never view people as highly as the world does. It's two cultures, a God-exalting culture and a man-exalting culture. And just as the world will never view God as we view Him, and they will never view the Lord Jesus Christ as highly exalted as we do Him, so we will never view them as they view themselves. And we will not bow down. We will not tremble when they come in the room. We will not ah and ooh and oh my. It's a different culture. But we will permit them. We will leave them to their liberties. But my point here as seen in the, in the book of Esther is they will not leave us alone. They will not permit us the same toleration. Now, Haman, who tries to get the king to get rid of all the Jews, and you see this in Esther 3 verse 13, he says to the king, let's get rid of them. They are not like us. It's not good to tolerate them. Verse 13 of Esther chapter 3 says, Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy and kill and annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. Now that was his toleration level. Let's get rid of them. And you have to remember that what this would mean is the entire Old Testament, then the people of God in the Old Testament would have been wiped out. Remember that as Jesus said in John 4, 22, salvation is of the Jews. In other words, they gave us, the Jewish people of the Old Covenant gave us the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures that promised a Messiah and described sacrifices and blood atonement and how to know God and where did man come from and create the creation story. There's so much the Old Testament gives us and the Jewish people gave us. And now they want to wipe all that out in one day. What they did not realize, though, is this. There was a woman who had come to that kingdom and was strategically placed to be a redemptive, rescuing influence for the people of the Jews. Mordecai tells Esther this. The king has chosen you. He he has favor on you. But don't think this position is all about you. It's about the people of God. And so you have this famous verse. Look at Esther chapter 4 and verse 13 and 14. Esther 4 verse 13. Mordecai told them to, to reply to Esther, Don't think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape more than other Jews. 
If you keep silent, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for just such a time as this. In other other words, your life has so intersected that one person is all God needs to change directions. And what Mordecai is saying, his theology is this. You may have only been born and being prepared for one event. One reason that you're here. One day, one hour. And that moment, all that precedes is preparation. And we don't know exactly when it is, but we can count on God to get us to it. Born and prepared and brought to the kingdom for just this moment. God does not need a majority. God does not need the strong. God does not need a man. God can use a weak, single woman to save his people. And I can remember a, an event. I was pastoring in Texas and uh, um, felt like God, I really felt strongly God led me there. But we'd been there a couple of years, and uh, I got a phone call from Iva, South Carolina. Now, we were in Texas and finished with school, and I th- almost, and this uh, church, First Baptist Church of Iva, South Carolina, very traditional church, I thought, and they, they asked us to fly down there and come in view of a call. That is, they were... They wanted me to preach, and they were going to vote on whether to call me as their pastor. So I got down there because I was wanting to leave Texas. Uh, when I got down there, I thought, this looks like a good place to come to. It's not that far from the coast. It's a traditional church. I could see myself just living there and, and loving those people and preaching the Word. And, and uh, they looked uh, pretty prosperous. And I thought, yeah, I'm liking this a lot. And when I preached, I even remember what I preached on, creation story. And I thought, you know, that went great. And if we voted right now, I'd get 99% of the vote. But they had already decided that they weren't going to vote as a church body. They were going to defer to a committee. And unknown to me, in this committee of about 10 people, the committee had already decided that if they're going to call a pastor, the committee must be in 100% agreement. And when I went in, answered their questions, one woman asked me about the women's program in the church. She thought I lacked enthusiasm for it. And she alone kept me in Texas. Because they had already agreed. We have to be in 100% agreement. It never got to the church. Now, behind the scenes was God saying, I'm not done with you in Texas. I stayed in Texas. We had a great 10 years of ministry there. 
built a new education building, built a new parsonage, and saw the church doubled in size. God blessed that. In fact, a second congregation was planted out of that church right after we left. They called it a church split, but I call it a church plant, so either way, it still worked. (laughs) But if one person ever stands in your way of acceptance in a school or uh, stepping into an opportunity... Trust God. He doesn't need a majority. He doesn't need it to be overwhelming. One individual can keep you in the will of God. And they don't even have to know it. So here is Esther. One little lady. And the king and Haman have decided to get rid of all the Jews. But she goes in... In chapter 5 of Esther, she goes in, standing in royal robes at the front door, and he sees her. And Esther 5, verse 2 says, When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. Now she fixes him a meal... And evaluates. He says to her, what do you want? What, what request are you bringing? She says, you know what I want? I want to spend an evening with you. Let's, let's just have a big feast. Okay. So she did what every smart woman knows to do when you want a man to do something. She feeds him. <laughs> Eat this food. She even gave him a glass of wine. Look at verse uh, 6. As they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said, What do you want from me? Which means she was not a Baptist. She was more of a Presbyterian, but whatever. (laughs) We're interdenominational, so we're, we're good to go. But as she talks to him, she says, Okay, what do you want? And she says, You know what I want? She says, I want to do this again tomorrow evening. Let's eat again. Okay. He's for that. And it's that second time. See, she's reading the signals. Folks, learn flexibility. Learn sensitivity. Don't just have a plan and walk through it woodenly. This is inflexible in cement. But rather, you're dealing with people. You're trying to influence them, not command them. Influencers do the most good in a nation than commanders do because they influence the commanders. So she's influencing him and she's reading the signals. First feast, he's not ready just yet. I want to make sure that I get a yes. And so then this second meal, which you have in chapter 7, he says, okay, Esther, what is it? Ask for anything you want. And she says, this wicked Haman has plotted to kill me and destroy my people. Now, Haman's at the meal. And the king is furious. He he can't even talk. He stands up and and, uh, storms out of the room. While he's out of the room, 
Haman knows, oh boy, I'm in big trouble. So she's sitting on the couch, and Haman falls at her feet while she's sitting on the couch and is begging for his life. And he's clinging to her legs. And then the king walks back in. Well, that's not good. And he says to Haman, the king does, Are you now going to assault my queen right in my presence? And he sends him out, has the young men take him out, and they hang him on gallows that he had originally prepared for Mordecai and the Jews. God is seen not only in putting the right person in the right place at the right time, but God is seen in his ability and wisdom in overruling pagan kings. Don't think because somebody is the president or the king that God is absent or inactive. One of the things that uh, I uh, saw recently, and when someone also gave me other information on it, was that the United States has been sending money to China through the United Nations. This money, the United Nations Population Fund, Population Control Fund, the Obama administration requested $50 million for it in 2012. And it goes, much of it went to China where they were enforcing a one-child policy. And they would arrest women who got pregnant a second time and they would force an abortion and sterilization. Tax dollars at work not just here in the United States, but doing that in other countries. My thought was, who in the world would begin or come up with the idea of such a policy of spending our money like that? Does that mean if somebody is that nuts, does that mean God cannot work in them or God does not put them there. I want to give you a verse. Uh, this might help some of you who, who are disturbed that Donald Trump became president, but maybe not, I don't know. Look at Daniel four seventeen, And I think we can pull this up. This is an amazing verse. That How that God wants the living to know that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men and gives it the kingdom to whom He wills and sets over it the lowliest of men. He can set people over kingdoms. He doesn't have to have smart people. He can just raise somebody up and put them in charge. So don't measure somebody by their position. But I, and I want to say one other word, though, here about uh, Donald Trump. Because I, I don't know that I'm in trouble just yet, and I might as well uh, push the buttons. But one of Trump's 
first executive orders this past week was to stop federal funding to those overseas organizations that promote and provide abortion. That was one of Donald Trump's first executive actions. And I say, hallelujah, praise God, I join with those babies and say, praise God for Donald Trump. <laughs> well, I wasn't expecting a round of applause, but I could use a few amens right in there. <laughs> I'll tell you, there's going to be some happy babies that Donald Trump became president if he only had that one week. But who came up with such a plan to use tax dollars? To force abortions. And how did they get in power? You have to be careful about evaluating people and ethics and things by who is in charge and at the top. God took this Persian king, influenced him with this one little lady, and saved the Jewish nation. And remember, this Persians are modern-day Iranians. So this hostility toward the Jews totally reversed. And so you have that, that verse that we began with. Look at Esther. Let's start in chapter 8. And let's look at this. Esther chapter 8, verse 15. So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes. See, Esther the queen has now shared the whole story. And he exalts, he elevates Mordecai. And Mordecai goes out, verse 15, with, in royal robes, blue and white, with great golden crown and a robe of fine linen. And the city shouted and rejoiced. And the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province, Esther 8, verse 17, and in every city, wherever the command and edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. It's called the Feast of Purim. They still do it today. Then verse 1 of chapter 9, and in that 12th month, which is the month Adar, on the 13th day, the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, but on that very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The reverse occurred. God is seen when history is reversed in favor of God's people. So let me summarize these. I'll put, let's put these up real quick. Three, the three ways to see God. God is seen when He puts the right person in the right place at the right time. Number two, God is seen when He overrules pagan kings and kingdoms of the earth. And number three, God is seen when history is reversed from the opposite direction that it seems to be in an avalanche. And God can reverse it in a day. You know, the great example of that is the death and resurrection of Christ. The worst day in history, the most perfect sinless man, And God took that 
and made it the greatest day in history. Salvation of the human soul. They said Jesus is worthy of crucifixion. And God said, you crucify him. I raise him up and give him a name above every name. The reverse of the avalanche. That's what I want you to trust in today. There is one name higher, we sang it. There's one name stronger than any name and any throne. Christ exalted over all. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help us to see you behind the scenes. Help us to be aware that there may be one great event that defines us. O faithful God of heaven, prepare us for it. May we be like Esther and say, this may be the time and the purpose for which I'm here. I will go. And if I perish, I perish. But I will risk for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and His people. May He be praised forever. Amen. Amen.